few people would trust an oil company or a car manufacturer to raise their children, that a small number of large for-profit companies have a vast influence on what Generation Z read, watch, and listen to. In 2019, the Children's Society warned that children were the unhappiest they've been for almost 25 years, attributing this to excessive social media use, increased loneliness, and turbulent friendships. As the world population increases, Generation Z is set to be by far the largest on record. And as such, the decisions which these companies make and the decisions of those who can hold them accountable will have a profound influence in the development of hundreds of Midlands. Welcome to the National Technology News Podcast. I'm Will McCurdy, Content Editor of National Technology News. And today we're joined by Robert Wigley, Chairman of UK Finance, entrepreneur, and author of Born Digital, to discuss these issues, as well as impossible solutions. All the opinions expressed in this podcast are his own, and not those of UK Finance. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Robert. Happy to have you on board. Thank you for having me. Very much looking forward to the discussion. So just to kick things off, could you just briefly introduce your book and what inspired you to write it? And particularly, what inspired you to write it right now um, in 2021? Uh, well, starting with the last question, um, I wrote it because I was thinking about how my own three adolescent children had grown up, how they used technology, how that had affected the way their personalities developed. And two years ago, um, as part of my work supporting young entrepreneurs, I decided to make a New Year's resolution to meet a new Gen Z entrepreneur every business day. And I did that uh, for quite a period of time until I'd met about 200. And it was those 200 conversations that really formed the research for my book and cemented my view that, that Gen Z is fundamentally different from my generation, not just in the way it uses technology, but in its, its attitude to life. And I, I think a lot of people my age haven't realized how fundamental that change is and that it's not going to reverse. And I wanted to try and write down what I'd learned and sort of join up some of the dots, if you like. So that's why I wrote it. What's it about? Well, it's about the fact that big tech and the devices and apps that they sell consume the world's collective attention in basically in pursuit of making profit by selling that attention to advertisers. And I think as a result, we can say that society is distracted, that that our attention has in some way been hijacked by what I call a tsunami of weapons of mass distraction that focus our attention uh, not on what we want to look at, but actually what big tech wants us to want to look at. And as I observed during these 200 meetings I was telling you about, for Generation Z in particular, that has been profoundly life-shaping. Um, we know that 71% of parents are very concerned about their children spending too much time in front of screens. Um, but if I've learned one thing in writing the book, it's not actually about screen time, it's about what you're doing when you're on the screen. And we know, as, as you said in your introduction, that during the last 10 years, as these technologies have become ubiquitous and, and delivered so many benefits in transforming our lives by making education, entertainment, shopping easier, so adolescent well-being, unhappiness, loneliness, anxiety, depression, and sadly self-harm uh, and even suicide have increased by a factor. So what my book looks at is the extent to which technology is responsible. Is this a coincidence that this has happened during the same 10 years or are there causal links? And ultimately, what I'm trying to do with the book 
Um, given that I think our generation is leaving Gen Z a pretty challenging environment, whether you look at the uh, continuing global war on, on terror, uh, the remaining overhang from the global financial crisis, uh, or even uh, now COVID debt and a, and a damaged planet, I want to equip Gen Z with the ability to reset society's relationship with technology. So that's that's kind of the summary. Yeah, and I really like that approach because there's no replacement for actually talking to real people. There's sort of a limit what you can learn by just reading about topics on the internet. But actually talking to young people is, I imagine, must be pretty vital for a book like this. Absolutely fundamental. And, and let me let me just say this, that there is some danger when you listen to this kind of a conversation that you think it's it's a bunch of older people moaning about your younger generation and that it's all negative. I'm absolutely not. I'm not negative about technology and I'm particularly not negative about Gen Z. I think I was bowled over during these 200 conversations by the remarkably mature attitude they have to the societal challenges we're leaving them to to their enthusiasm, their open-mindedness, their, their highly developed social consciences. Uh, their their sense of entrepreneurship and their zest for life. So that's why I think it's particularly important to to help them by provoking them and perhaps giving them some tools to lead this reset of society's relationship with technology. Yeah, exactly. I mean, people who grow up with a supercomputer in their pocket are in some respects going to be maybe a little bit more intelligent in some respects than their forebearers. So uh, not just a supercomputer, but a world-class film studio in their pocket. Yes, exactly. It's incredible when you think about it. So moving on to a fairly dark topic, China has started to treat internet addiction as a serious ailment and to offer rehab clinics, acknowledging that it has a physical basis. How long do you think it will take, if ever, for the Western world to start taking internet addiction seriously? Uh, I think it already is. So a few th quick things. So the World Health Organization has already called out gaming uh, as a particularly addictive form of internet use uh, on a global basis. They've also, by the way, identified that the internet is partly responsible for causing what they call a world sleep loss epidemic, uh, because of course, a lot of us and particularly youngsters are most wedded to their screens late at night and into the early hours of the morning. <clears throat> and this is causing them to spend their daytimes uh, with, with a sleep deficit. So in not just in China, but actually all, all over Asia, there are now internet addiction clinics. And that's perhaps partly because gaming and social media have become most prevalent there in terms of the number of hours per day they're watched. But it's increasingly a problem in, in the West too. And interestingly, the first internet addiction clinic was just opened in London a matter of weeks ago at one of the main London teaching hospitals. And I think governments around the world are beginning to identify that harms are caused to both children and the vulnerable by the darker sides of the internet and the action needs to be taken to address this issue. And in, in the UK, as you know, this year, the government is bringing an online harms bill before parliament, which for the first time ever will place on big tech a statutory duty of care to consider what harms their products and services might be causing and to try and mitigate those harms. And they'll have to report this to Ofcom, the regulator, who will then assess whether those mitigations are adequate. And if they're not, they have the right to fine these companies. So Australia has appointed an e-safety commissioner to advise the public on how to use the 
internet safely and indeed to advise the government on what action it needs to take. Um, the EU is considering a range of measures. So I think the Western world is absolutely on the case. Uh, we could argue about the, the speed at which it's doing so and whether the measures they're taking are adequate, but there's definitely a recognition of a problem and, and an intent to take action. Yes, and that's incredibly reassuring to hear, but it's just the technology moves so quickly. It's such a difficult task regulating at the necessary pace. Well, that, that's the problem. And I, I mean, I think we've seen through history, um, perhaps the global financial crisis was a good example of this. Our industries change bit by bit over a prolonged period uh, and regulation perhaps struggles to keep up with that change. And I think that's exactly what's happened in the, in, in the internet age. So moving on, there's a concept in the book I found really fascinating, the concept of neuroplasticity. Could you briefly describe the subject and how experts believe that technology actually physically molds the brains of young people? Yeah, so basically what it means is that the, the brain adapts to what it's used for, to be better at the thing that it's asked to do most of. Um, so if you're spending you know, eight to 10 hours on a screen uh, and, and a certain amount of that time involves using multiple devices, uh, then your brain will adapt to multitask. And this, of course, is what we see in our youngsters you know, all day long. The problem with neuroplasticity, which is a great word to ask to someone to say on a podcast, by the way, is that uh, the brain has finite capacity. There's a sort of a use it or lose it principle which means that as we ask the brain to multitask, it loses the ability to do something else because uh, the multitasking ability replaces something else. It doesn't add to it. The brain is finite. So our youngsters are like, I, I term them digital bees in the book. They're sort of grazing on multiple information sources simultaneously. And one of the issues around that is, does that mean they lose the ability to deep attend to a conversation or deep listen to music or deep watch a film or deep read a book or text. And if that is the case, which I believe it is, is that consistent with what the skill set they'll need to have in a world of AI, where maybe uh, computers and robots will take over the more basic work, requiring human beings to focus on the more complex tasks. So in other words, are we through this process of neuroplasticity and multitasking, just at the moment when we need youngsters to be capable of deep work um, we're actually training them to be the opposite which is distracted and multitasking that's a really interesting question yeah so as the age of ai comes fully into force it's going to be a much more competitive world for actual human beings and they're going to have to bring a much stronger skill set to the table unfortunately so moving on just to play devil's advocate somewhat in the 18th century you would not have had to look far to find people who would have considered reading novels a frivolous hobby or a waste of time. Could older generations potentially be wrong about the mediums, such as gaming, which Generation Z are currently enjoying? So it's a really interesting question, and it's something I do examine in the book. I mean, listen, there's nothing wrong with an hour or two of gaming a day, depending on what the gaming product you're using is there's there's nothing wrong with an hour of social media scrolling chill and scroll during the day the problem comes with longer amounts of use so let me come back to that in a minute uh, and just in relation to books so 
books started off only being available to the wealthy because they were expensive. And then as the cost of books came down, so books became more freely available. And that made a major contribution to education and to the expansion of human knowledge to a wider group of people who were able to access books more frequently. Um, but of course, as the cost came down, so the volume of material in written form expanded to include what we might call less beneficial materials, including perhaps at the worst end, things like porn. And I think social media has, has some sort of some, some similarities here. It is, of course, broadly speaking, free or free-ish. And again, it's, it's definitely brought huge benefits to society in providing information to a wider group of people, providing uh, new forms of education, and for people to express their views. And that's all good. But unfortunately, with it comes the potential for cyberbullying, for hate speech, and for technology-assisted child sexual abuse. And what I would say is in relation to books, when books grew in popularity, it didn't get to the point, I think, where people were reading books 10 to 12 hours a day, as in most people were reading books that long. Whereas that is the amount of um, time that Gen Z spends on screens. Now, as I said earlier, all screen time is not equal. If you are focused on educating yourself or focused on entertaining yourself for an hour or two here and there, nothing wrong with that. And all users are not equal. There are some uh, children who are more resilient who will not be affected by what they see on the internet. Unfortunately, there are many children and the vulnerable who, who will find the darker side of the internet troubling. And so um, I'm not painting out technology to be, uh, to be wholly negative, but I do think overexposure to certain aspects of the internet can be dangerous to some. And the, the other main difference is that books were not designed to be negative. Social media is programmed to be negative, and that is because uh, in the attention economy, where what you want to do is focus people's attention to keep them on social media, uh, so that you can sell those eyeballs to advertisers. The sad fact is that negative emotions are more engaging than positive ones. So social media is inherently programmed to be negative. Uh, and that perhaps explains uh, some of the negative impacts that, that we believe it has. Yeah, um, exactly. I agree wholeheartedly. I mean, I think the point you outlined about some people do have a predisposition to addiction, and it's exactly the same as substance addiction. Some people can use these platforms or these games and be fine, but then some people, their brains might be wired slightly differently and it's the worst thing they ever chose to do. Yes, and I, mean, I think that's, you know, as I say in the book, there is no week that goes by when I don't bump into another parent who's had some terrible experience with their child on the internet. And these are not, you know, these are, in inverted commas, successful children who are otherwise fit, who are positive about their lives, who have everything to go for uh, and everything going in their favour. And yet time and time again, we're coming across cases where even these children are, are suffering through overexposure to certain aspects of the internet. And that's what I think we need to examine uh, in more detail and try to mitigate. So moving on, Robert, the EU has recently instituted laws which put limitations on the development of AI. However, some lawyers have commented that these regulations are overly vague and could potentially limit the development of new technology. How do we draw the line between regulating the impact of big tech on consumers 
on stopping the all-important progress of technology? It's, you know, that's such a great question, and we could spend the entire podcast talking about it. And happily, there are minds much greater than mine working on that subject. The Oxford Internet Institute, for example, has a bunch of professors working on the whole issue of uh, data ethics. And I think the EU actually is to be congratulated for having a go at this. I mean, um, it will be a learning process over time. And we mustn't stop uh, progress from the beneficial use of AI because AI ultimately can bring down costs for business. It can bring down the price of goods for consumers. It can increase choice for consumers and it can increase convenience for consumers. Think about some of the applications in the financial services industry where we use AI to help us make decisions about um, which insurance policy might be appropriate for a particular driver, for example, uh, or which mortgage insurance policy might be appropriate to someone's particular home circumstances. So there are all sorts of good uses for AI, but with the use of AI comes the risk of bias, because whenever you have an automated decision-making process, you run the risk that bias is built into the algorithm. And there's a brilliant book, by the way, on this subject called Weapons of Maths Destruction, uh, which looks at this particular issue. But I think what the EU has done is to have a first go at trying to find a balance between uh, enabling technology to progress whilst protecting uh, the, the minorities and groups that might suffer from bias and algorithms at the same time. And this will this will evolve over time. Regulators will get better better at this as they understand the issue better. But of course, at the same time, technology will be progressing, meaning that the regulation will need to run to keep up. But it, it's an incredibly complicated area. And as I say, happily, uh, mine's greater than mine are working on it. And the UK intends to be a leader in this area. The government has uh, supported a number of initiatives, not just at... Um, at Oxford, but uh, through the Turing Institute uh, and elsewhere, uh, set up working groups to, to stay on top of this issue, as, by the way, has the UN at very high level. Um, yeah, I'm just so curious about how these issues are going to play out within the next few decades and uh, what countries are going to let things slip and what countries are going to lead the way. So just to round things off, Robert, what strategies would you give or where would you direct people who want to find out how to unplug from today's weapons of mass distraction? So in the book, I list a whole range of different approaches we need to take here, starting with uh, Generation Z detoxing itself. And one of the, one of the you know, great things about the 200 people I met was amongst them, there are a lot of Gen Zers who knew that they were being distracted, knew that they were multitasking when sometimes they needed to be focused and had decided they wanted to do something about them, that themselves, like take themselves off social media, either uh, completely off particular platforms that they found particularly distracting or simply you know, unplugging at certain times of the day. But the truth is that, as one observer put it, if you have one adolescent brain on one side of the screen, and 100 of the world's best neuroscientists on the other side of the screen um, working to try and addict you, that's not really a fair fight. So I think we've got to be realistic about the extent to which people can be expected to be disciplined and detox. So I think the next thing we need is parental and education system involvement. In terms of parents, <clears throat> I know myself that when I talk to my children, I tend to talk to them without intending to. I tend to talk to them about their offline day. So I'll say, what have you been doing today? And I'll get stories about they're meeting with a friend for a chat or playing football or having a game of tennis, I don't say, 
yeah, okay, but in the three hours between 11 p.m. and 2 a.m. when you were on Instagram and Snapchat chatting to friends, what you know, who were you talking to and what kind of conversations were you having and what issues were you discussing? It could be seen as prying, but actually we do need to involve ourselves in our children's online lives, engage with that and, and try and help them understand the difference between on and offline relationships and some of the dangers relating to the, to the internet. And I think the education system fall short here because so in the national curriculum in the UK for example we have compulsory sex education but we don't have a module called responsible internet use which you'd have thought would be fundamental to any youngster so I think we should. Then I think there are some things the design industry can do the software design industry could take more responsibility and make some of their programs less addictive I think that's highly unlikely because they're ultimately commissioned by people who want those programs to retain your attention. And that inevitably leads you to the big tech companies who could themselves decide that there's a better balance between the pursuit of profit and serving society in some wider purpose. I'd like to see that happen. I'm not holding my breath, which I'm afraid leads you to the inevitable need for more regulation, which is where I think things like the Online Harms Bill in the UK and the Safety Commission in Australia come in to try and place some responsibility on big tech to moderate and uh, particularly uh, the use of children and the vulnerable. Think of it a bit like health and safety legislation. It was a long time after dangerous machinery was employed in factories that, that governments legislated to place a responsibility on employers to protect their employees from, from dangerous machinery. I think the online harms bill in the UK can be thought of as a very similar measure. It's placing a responsibility on big tech to think about what harm they might be causing um, and if they do identify harms, to take actions to mitigate those harms. Yeah, exactly. And I, I thought the Industrial Revolution point you highlighted was very apt. I mean, it was decades and decades and decades after this, these technologies were first introduced, before they were regulated properly. And in that time, there was this vast amount of poverty and death and issues caused by the introduction of these really disruptive technologies in such a short period of time. And I think that's just something that we're going through almost at the moment, that it could be a long time before the government and regulators really catch up. I agree, and not least because they're maybe not so obviously dangerous. I mean, it's pretty obvious if you put your hand into a into a lathe and it, and it cuts you, uh, you know, that you need to be protected. Uh, I think use of the internet or overuse of particular aspects of the internet by certain people is a much less obvious problem. And in a way, that's what my book is trying to highlight, that we, we, do need, we need to be all over this as a society before it becomes an insoluble problem and take action to deal with it. And like any other problem, physical or otherwise, taking action early is always a key step. Particularly when it involves the development of the young mind uh, and, and the fact that that can then have lifetime effects on that developed or psychosocialized uh, adolescent brain. Yes, exactly. So that was a fantastic conversation, Robert, which I have wholeheartedly enjoyed. So thanks for volunteering your time because I, I imagine your schedule is, is an absolute nightmare, but we really do appreciate you coming on the podcast. And um, just uh, one final thing, if, if our listeners would like to find out more about Born Digital, is there anywhere you direct them? Yes, if they want the proceeds to have the best chance of going to charity, and I'm devoting all profits from the book to adolescent wellbeing charities, then www.robertwigley.uk is the place to go. If 
they don't mind uh, <laughs> some of the big techs sopping up more of the uh, more of that uh, revenue and less going to charity. Then obviously it's available on Amazon, Kindle, uh, and Audible. So thanks that again, and uh, enjoy the rest of the day, Robert. William, thank you so much for having me onto the podcast. Really good conversation.